This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we venture further into the ideas from the book, Understanding the Jewish Roots of Christianity, discussing chapters two and three on how the authors of the New Testament used Tanakh and whether Jesus intended to establish a new religion. Yeah, I just really appreciated this book and thought it was great fodder for a few episodes worth of discussion. So probably take a couple chapters at a time here and there and i don't think we're going to do every single chapter in here but yeah just to remind ourselves we had our conversation with uh jen in last week's episode and uh, that was incredible she's one of the contributors here and we're not actually gonna go over her chapter because we spent so so much time talking about the same work in that episode so hers will be one chapter that we skip here but um yeah this book uh understanding the jewish roots of christianity and then the subtitle just serves as a helpful reminder. Biblical, theological, and historical essays on the relationship between Christianity and Judaism. So, And maybe, Marty, uh, we should talk about, like, if you haven't listened to Jen Rosner's episode, that's a pretty good setup for this conversation. But also maybe talk about um, what the setup is on a grander scale for this episode. If you are looking for information about this book and you happen to stumble into this episode, or maybe you are interested in one of the authors of the, the two essays that we're discussing today and you found this episode, like what, what are we doing here? What is the context for this conversation? What a great prompt. Uh, now that we're in session six, I always kind of forget about this. And I got an email just today, uh, somebody that was listening to our chosen commentary from episodes back and, uh, they said, I haven't listened to the rest of your body of work, and uh, they were expressing some confusion on some things. So yeah, if you've stumbled into our podcast, what you're really listening to is a session, our sixth session, that we call Postscripts. And we call it that because it's kind of the afterthoughts, uh, kind of the indefinite uh, afterthoughts from our main body of work, which is our first five sessions which was, what, 206 episodes, Brent? How many episodes were we talking about? Yeah, about that. Yeah, about four and a half, was it four years, four and a half years worth of recording? Yep. 206 episodes, and we we journeyed through the entire scripture and then a little jaunt through church history. We wanted to see what is the grand narrative that God has been telling? What's the story that God's been telling? What is the story we find ourselves in the middle of? And, um, and so, yeah. And, and in fact, we could even give a little roadmap here. We spent 31, 32 episodes going through session one, which was a study on Torah. Um, and, uh, and, and it's, it's some of, uh, I think our listeners favorite content. It was one of my favorite to produce and create. Then we went through, I, I don't know, another 30, 40 episodes where we went through session two, which was the prophets and the writings, the rest of Tanakh, the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, the rest of what we call the Old Testament. And uh, a, a lot of, for a lot of people, it was a, it was the slog, but there were some really, really important movements to this and fun conversations about how the Bible works and all kinds of great things. And then session three was another, uh, I think one of our crowd favorites, it was the Gospels. And uh, it wasn't just the Gospels because some of our favorite content uh, to make and that people listen to is uh, where we set up the uh, the gospel accounts, the silent years. We talk about the context of the gospels and what what led uh, what led to the world that Jesus 
uh, entered into. And then we went verse by verse. Uh, Brent, you remember this journey, verse by verse through Matthew. We chose one gospel. We did Matthew and um, went through that and did every verse of Matthew. And uh, and then that led to session four, which was the rest of the New Testament. We we went to Acts. We went verse by verse through Galatians. We went verse by verse through Romans. We kind of bounced through some of the other letters. We kind of slowed down through places like Hebrews. And then a, a, a pretty intense study of Revelation. So four sessions, we went through the entire scriptures, Old and New Testaments, Hebrew and Christian scriptures. And then... Um, and then we had, I don't know, 11 episodes of church history just to kind of try to connect the dots from what happened since, uh, the days of the Bible to the days that we occupy today. And that's really the body of work. That is, that is the, that's the stuff. Like if you want Bema discipleship, the Bema podcast, really, you would look at, um, the, the stuff and, uh, and that would be it. That'd be the main body of work. Everything else is just extra commentary. I don't think I would call it fluff, but... Uh... Yeah, revisiting old ideas, going deeper on stuff, uh, even covering topics that we didn't have time for initially or whatever. So right. I think, though, um, we're, we're going to pull some ideas from those first five sessions of our conversation. So hopefully most of what we say today will make sense and will stand more or less independently. But, I mean, we are, like, working on a foundation. And so if something seems foreign or strange, then I mean, maybe jump back to the beginning and and start going through it and see what you think. So yeah, it is going to be difficult to have this conversation about this book and not just kind of uh, assume all the things that uh, we have spent so much time learning. So that is very true. Very deserving. I mean, how, how the authors of the new Testament used to knock. So we're talking three and four using one and two. Yeah, if this is if this is news to any of our listeners, and we just uh, either weren't paying attention or we didn't do a very good job teaching some of the essential goodies of what we talked about, because uh, text to context is a pretty uh, bema idea, right, Brent? Mm-hmm, definitely. So let's jump into it then. Why don't we talk about uh, chapter two? All right, uh, written by Mark S. Gignilliat. Gignilliat. I'm not really sure how to say his name, uh, but it is titled. Old Testament, how did the New Testament authors use Tanakh? Tanakh being the Jewish scriptures or what we typically call the Old Testament. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's a great uh, chapter title just to serve as a little bit of a review for us, because if we, if you have been on this journey with us for 230 some odd episodes, um, then I think we have started to take this truth for granted, which on one level is awesome. I mean, that needs to be the assumption for us. On another level, I think... Um, uh, once you've done this long enough, you, we tend to forget that maybe, I don't know if most of the Christian world, but at least most of the Christian world that many of us were coming out of or grew out of um, or were trained in, they they didn't work with this assumption. They worked with this assumption like there's the New Testament. That's the part that matters for us as Jesus followers. And there's kind of this backstory. Maybe it's cool if you know about it. Maybe you don't know about it. The really good Bible students do. It's not that essential. And and what we've learned all throughout our journey is that, man, nothing could be further from the truth. It's it's absolutely essential historically. It's absolutely essential to interpret your New Testament because there's no part of your New Testament that's not simply providing inspired commentary on the old on what we call the Old Testament of the Hebrew Scriptures on Tanakh. So, um, 
It'd be good. Good little review here. How did the New Testament authors use Tanakh? So Mark here, I'm going to call him Mark because I don't want to, I don't know Mark on a personal level where I should be able to call him Mark. But Mark, I don't know how to say your last name. So we're going to call Mark Mark today. Hopefully he's okay with that. You think we're okay with that, Brent? Uh, I think it's our best option. <laughs> I'll even call him Dr. Mark if I have to. I'm, I'm, I'm sure he's a doctor. I'm sure he's a PhD. Uh, I don't know for sure. I will double check on that for you. All right. Brent's checking on that. But anyway, Mark opens up the chapter with this beautiful story of this uh, friend he had, um, family member of a friend. His name is Jeremiah, and he has uh, high-functioning autism. And he just tells this beautiful story about um, as somebody who lived with high function autism, he would have these, he would get laser focused on some um, area of learning. And for, for this period of life, he was like just laser focused on the Old Testament. He just loved it. He loved learning about the Hebrew scriptures, loved the stories, just loved, loved, loved. So, so Mark brings him in and he, he's just enjoying talking to him. And then he, he kind of wants to playfully like engage Jeremiah. So he takes him down to the chapel where they have all of, I believe it was stained glass windows or at least art that's depicted on the chapel walls. And there's all these panels and all of them, was there 12? Let's see here. Um, uh, I asked Jeremiah to look at the painted panels around the apse. Each depict a scene from the Bible with the last scene displaying Martin Luther's tacking of the 95 theses of the castle church's door in Wittenberg. I said, Jeremiah, do you notice something troubling about our panels? There are 10 of them. Only one depicts a scene from the Old Testament. Jeremiah was aghast in the midst of our shared. So he talks about, and there's kind of this funny moment where he says that he's having this conversation because of who Jeremiah is and what he loves. And there's a chapel attendant there who overhears them. And so like they run over and they're like trying to like, oh, no, no, no. Let me tell you why these paintings are important. And, and he just kind of with a twinkle in his eye says, it was this question that really disturbed Jeremiah. Why was there only one painting? And and he says that, that really depicts this struggle, this relationship, or the lack thereof that Christian history, Christian theology has often had, particularly in the last, you know, since medieval theology in the last thousand years. Uh, and, and yet the early church, here's a quote here from early in the chapter, um, the church has never operated apart from the scriptures of Israel as a governing body of authoritative scriptures. And, and he's talking about the early church there. Um, uh, let's see here. Moreover, the New Testament leans on the Old Testament for its own theological sense-making and perhaps more provocatively does not even exist apart from its relation to the Old Testament. So I'll read, I'll read two portions of that again. The church has never operated apart from the scriptures of Israel as a governing body of authoritative scriptures. And then, and then the New Testament does not even exist apart from its relation to the Old Testament. Like the New Testament can't exist in a vacuum. It's impossible for it to exist apart from its relation to the Old Testament. Um. He goes on a sentence later, despite the complexities of sifting through the canonical, is that how I say that? Canonical? Speaking of the canon yep, of scriptures? Right. Is it canonical? Canical? Can, can, it's canonical. <laughs> you had it right. Uh, you had it right. <laughs> all right. Sweet. 
Um, despite the complexities of sifting through the canonical history of the New Testament documents, there was never a time that Jesus Christ, the apostles, or the earliest members of Christ's church did not recognize the scriptures of Israel as a constraining authority and privileged source of divine revelation, which is a good point to start the chapter with, right? You are right, by the way. He is Dr. Mark, and uh, he's been teaching Old Testament and Hebrew theology and everything else since 2005. And uh, yeah, his his books, um, like he talks about how he has a whole book dedicated to how Paul would have understood a portion of Isaiah in the context of something he wrote in Second Corinthians. So this guy goes deep on on how we're integrating Tanakh into the New Testament. So definitely a lot to look into there if, if this topic interests you at all. Beautiful. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, Dr. Mark goes on. He talks about despite Marcion's, and we talked about Marcion in session five, uh, despite his best efforts uh, to suggest otherwise, it does not take a deep reading of the New Testament to see the Old Testament's presence from beginning to end. It really doesn't take much. You don't really have to work too hard if you're paying attention just a little bit to see how attached the entire conversation um, is to the Hebrew scriptures. And and we're going to keep going back and forth between Hebrew scriptures and Old Testament. I try, Brent, to like not use Old Testament a whole lot, but I also try to recognize that it's the common vernacular that we typically use. So I kind of bounce back and forth. Do you think I do? You, do you think that's problematic? How do you think we do that? Yeah, well, I I have the same struggle because yeah, it is. We want people to understand what we're talking about, but at the same time, it's not necessarily the best way to to look at that portion of scripture. So you know. <laughs> right. I, I think it's good to just go back and forth and, and re- remember, like, to some people, it's considered the Old Testament, but um, to others, it's there's a, a very different view of what it is. Absolutely. Yep. Um, and then just through this little section of the chapter, uh, Dr. Mark just keeps talking about um, uh, just showing um, Jesus's logic, his interpretive logic is always tied. His parables, for instance. Uh, in Luke 8, Jesus directly connects the parables to which prophet, Brent Billings, can you remember? Why do you teach him parables? And Jesus says, I teach him parables because of what the prophet so-and-so said. Who was it? Uh, Isaiah. You got it. That's a pretty good guess, too. Like, if you were guessing, that's pretty good. <laughs> it was a total guess, but I figured yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a pretty good chance. Jesus <laughs> does use a lot of Isaiah. That's right. And some would even say, like, when Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. Like, even these things are allusions to these Hebrew prophets and what they called God's people to. Um, uh, the, the, the laws of Leviticus uh, 17 through 19 um, are, are a part of uh, like how Acts 15 and the Jerusalem council, when they come together, they're actually dealing with what they call the Noah, the, the Noahic, uh, the Noahican, um, the Noahide laws, sometimes people call them. But, but you're going to find that in Torah. That's all rooted in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, uh, he keeps calling back to Isaiah here. Uh, he says this. There's a, a paragraph I'm going to read here. The scene is a familiar one, and the textual sense appears clear enough on the literary surface. Isaiah's promise of good news and liberation. He's speaking of Jesus reading the passage out of Isaiah in the synagogue that day in Nazareth. 
He says, the, the good news and liberation for a future day of the Lord's favor has been broken into time by means of Jesus of Nazareth. This reading is straightforward and certainly passes for textual understanding. A second glance, however, at Isaiah's larger canonical context may allow nuances and hues of understanding that go beyond uh, this surface account to include a fuller understanding of Jesus Christ's person and work along with the long-term effects of his ministry in the church. I think we'd call it the kingdom. Uh, Excuse me, back to the quote. Um, A closer examination of Isaiah 61 suggests that the first person speaking voices uh, behind this familiar refrain are the dramatic figures of Isaiah 54 through 66, referred to as what we called in the session two, the servant discourse. He calls them here the servants, quote unquote. Um, Yet on the other hand, let's see, one paragraph later in the chapter, he says, yet on the other hand, Jesus in Luke 4 says, after reading this text, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. How exactly is a text whose authorial agency in Isaiah is the servant's offspring fulfilled in Jesus Christ today? And so he, he goes on to talk about, again, this relationship between these are not two separate texts. This is not Old Testament, New Testament. This is not Hebrew scriptures on, and then we're like using it for these two realities are are completely intricately linked, connected, and we don't have two stories. We have one story. Here's a here's a highlighted quote that's in. Uh, bold in my highlighted notes here. The New Testament's canonical authority is grounded by its relation to the scriptures of Israel and has no being apart from its relation to the Old Testament. (laughs) I'll read that again. The New Testament's canonical authority is grounded by its relation to the scriptures of Israel and has no being apart from its relation to the Old Testament. So good, Dr. Mark. And that is what we've been talking about this whole time. It is one big story. So, of course, that they are so intricately tied together. Yeah, that should not be that should not be any new content for anybody that's been listening to our podcast for a while. Uh, but just good to hear somebody else. Again, we've heard it through our conversation nonstop. It's so good to back up and watch somebody in a different academic circle talk about this from a different lens, from a different starting point, with different parameters, different academic objectives. Oh, Brent, and then there's this part that I still don't know how I feel about this chapter, but there's this part in this chapter where um, Dr. Merck starts talking about, uh, he thinks that if there's a relationship between, so he starts talking about the hypostatic union. Can you remember the hypostatic union, Brent? What was that? What was the hypostatic union? Uh, Is that the idea of Jesus being God. Pretty close, absolutely. Or at least it's the fourth ecumenical council. So it was the part of um, ecumenical orthodoxy that was talking about is Jesus, God, and man simultaneously mm. at the same time. It was that hypostatic union. Right. The okay. fact that simultaneously at the same time that he's fully God, he is also at the same time fully man, right? So this is key tenet to Trinitarian orthodoxy. And Dr. Mark suggests, and I would, I would, I would assume that lots of people will, will, I would assume say this is a leap, like you shouldn't necessarily apply it this way. He says, I think we should apply the same thinking to the scriptures. Uh, the Chalcedonian logic went as follows: If Christ is human and divine in a single subject known as the hypostasis. So too is scripture both human and divine in his authorial source 
and coming to be. And I believe this train of thought is rooted historically. I've heard Peter Enns do the same thing in, I, I think, um, uh, Brent, he had a book called Inspiration and Incarnation. Inspir- I, I, I'm actually just about ready to start reading it. Um, for myself, I actually own a copy now, so I'm going to go through it more thoroughly than I have in the past. Um, but we can link that in the show notes. I believe in that book, he has a huge section, if I remember right, on this same Chalcedonian logic, uh, that if Jesus Christ is both human and divine in a single subject known as the hypostasis, so too is scripture, both human and divine as an authorial source and coming to be. Uh, and so he he goes on to talk about talk about two two words I had never necessarily heard before in hypostatic in hypostatic e n hypostatic and then un hypostatic a n hypostatic in hypostasis and un hypostasis am I saying that correctly Brent would you would you help with my articulation Yeah I have no idea <laughs> I've never heard those words before Yeah e n and a n in hypostatic and unhypostatic, the positive affirmation of the inhypostatic character of Christ's humanity is that it genuinely exists in the full person of Christ. Christ's humanity is a genuine humanity like ours and resides within the divine human logos, who is Jesus Christ. So this is the part that we're always so passionate about, Brent, on the Baymont podcast. This is the part we talk to Dallas Jenkins about when we talk about God goggles. It's the inhypostatic nature of Christ that we're so wound up about. His his humanity is a true humanity. It's a full humanity. It is, in Dr. Mark's words, a genuine humanity. Yeah? Does that make sense? Tracking with me? Mm, yes. Yep. All right. Then there's the anhypostasis. Here, I'm reading Dr. Mark, the theological term seeks to provide a negative account of when of what inhypostasis affirms. While Christ's humanity is real and subsistent, it also has no trend, uh, independent stat- status apart from its union with the divine nature of the Logos. I'll read that again. Here, the theological term seeks to provide a negative account of what inhypostasis affirms. While Christ's humanity is real and subsistent, we just said, no God goggles, truly human, genuine humanity, it also has no independent status apart from its union with the divine nature of the Logos. So did you follow that, Brent? Are you tracking with me? I, I think so. All right. So, so he was genuinely fully human, and yet that genuine, fully human Jesus, like this first century rabbi, had no existence apart from the divine nature of the Logos. This is very un, uh, unusual for a Bema discussion. We don't spend a lot of time doing Trinitarian Orthodoxy in <laughs> discussion. And yet Dr. Mark's logic is to apply it to text, to apply it to the what we would call the Old Testament-New Testament relationship. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense to link them because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Like, So mm. what distinction is there between Ooh, the I Word like that. or the text and the nature of God? <sighs> Very Jewish of you, Brent. I think I think that's even more Jewish than you even realize. It's so good. <laughs> um, I'll read this last quote here. If the inhypostatic, unhypostatic analogy helps us understand the material character of our Bibles— I believe it does then the and I believe it does then I, then the analogy must go something like the following the New Testament 
is anhypostatic in its relation to the Old Testament. That is, the New Testament has no being apart from its relation to the scriptures of Israel. To which my brain exploded, and I was like, thank you, Dr. Mark. That's awesome. Uh, and then he concludes the chapter. So that that I think we're probably good to move on to the next chapter for our discussion today. But any, anything you'd like to add or reflect on or ask questions about, Brent, in chapter two of Understanding the Jewish Roots of Christianity? Uh, I don't think so. Some things to chew on there, yes? Yeah, definitely. And and by all means, if if this conversation is interesting, I think uh, uh, what I'm seeing of the books that uh, Dr. Mark has written it seems like uh, there's plenty more to dive into if, if this is of interest to anyone. Ah, I love it. So chapter three, Brent, you read us the title of chapter two. You should tell us about chapter three. Yeah, so this chapter is titled, Did Jesus Plan to Start a New Religion? Uh, by Matthew Thiessen. Not of Reliant K, as we learned last episode with Jen, but I'm still I'm still not completely convinced that they're not the same person. We're, yeah, we're, we're still doing some digging. We think there's a conspiracy. <laughs> and I'm still So yeah, the, and I love uh, the the part of Matt Thiessen's work I've been able to brush up against, and this chapter included, has just, I've just really enjoyed. He writes this chapter, that Jesus planned to start a new religion. I love the opening and closing lines to his first paragraph here. Uh, in his 1526 lectures on the book of Jonah, Martin Luther argued that the plant that grows over Jonah's head represents Judaism, and the worm that eats and kills the plant turns out to be Jesus. <laughs> Martin Luther had some rough anti-Semitic thoughts. I'll tell you what in his theology. Yeah. Um, a lot of folks wondered why we didn't spend more time with the Reformation and Martin Luther in session five. And we tried to to honor and be thankful and gracious for the things that we are really um, – uh, I, I mean, he's responsible for uh, he and the Reformation in general, like helped move the Christian dialogue forward. And yet there were some pieces that were just – uh, so that was the first statement. Last statement of the paragraph. Such claims, far from unique in Christian writings or thought, as Amy Newman has shown, uh, belong within a larger Protestant trope about the purported death of Judaism. Uh, he goes on, talks about some more, and then, then he says, in more recent times, numerous scholars have made analogous claims, albeit more nuanced, in order to avoid blatant anti-Judaism of these earlier writers. For example, John Dominic Crossan, who is a scholar I deeply respect on many levels, don't agree with everything, but I, I really appreciate John Dominic Crossan. I think I've even recommended some works here and there. Yep, we certainly have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, argues that Jesus saw himself as the functional opponent, alternative, and substitute to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. All right, so so John Dominic Crossan, and I've read that. I know that that's his position. And I think there is some... Uh, truth to what he's trying to communicate, that Jesus was here to offer a critique. But Crossan says he sees himself as the functional opponent, alternative, and substitute for the Jewish temple. While on the other side, I'm back to quoting Thiessen again, while on the other side of the ideological spectrum, N.T. Wright suggests that Jesus implicitly and explicitly attacked what had become standard symbols of the Second Temple Jewish worldview. He saw them not as bad in of themselves, but as out of date, belonging to a period before the coming of the kingdom, and to be jettisoned now that a new day had dawned. Again, I think there's some decent nuggets of 
yes and that, and also some like, ooh. In contrast, Thiessen continues, Jewish scholars, listen to this list, Brent. There's some names here that I love so much. Listen to this. Such scholars such as Joseph Klossner, David Flusser, uh, Giza Vermes, Paula Fredrickson, huge name, Amy Jill Levine, great scholar, modern-day scholar right now, ooh, such great, have long stressed the continuity between Jesus' teachings and that of his fellow Jews. A good number of non-Jewish scholars, most notably E.P. Sanders, we've recommended him before, have sought to place Jesus within Judaism, not against it, and not seeking to cause its death. Uh, So I just loved that quote. So then next section he titles two caveats. His first caveat um, was that we need to we need to we need to be honest about the serious problem of trying to uh, answer the question of, of what is Jesus' plans and intentions. And the problem is, is that we can't truly do that because we don't get to talk to a physical, real Jesus that talks back to us in the sense that we could ask him questions about what his historical intentions were and clear up this historical nuance. And can you explain what you meant that day when you said this? That part is one of those things that we just can never quite pull off. Ultimately, uh, Thiessen says, after kind of waxing eloquent on this for a while, he says, ultimately, I no longer find persuasive efforts to get behind the Gospels to a historical Jesus. The various criteria, while not entirely without merit, is simply too weak to yield results of much value, Um, which I thought, I just liked saying that statement out loud because it's kind of the check to what we do here at Bema all the time. It's the academic check that is well-warranted and well-placed. So we spend a ton of time in session three, Brent, kind of doing that, trying to get at the historical Jesus that lies behind the gospels when we read them. If we understand Jesus, if we understand the rabbinic Jewish context, if we, we get all this insight and we can get a better sense of who this Jewish rabbi was that we know as Jesus, our, our commentary on the chosen, we're having a conversation about who is the historical Jesus behind the Gospels. And Thiessen here says, ultimately, I no longer find persuasive efforts to do that because we can't. We simply can't fill in enough blanks. We can't connect enough dots. And he's saying that from an academic perspective, which, you know, he raises a good point, and we, we do well to remember that as we speculate, as we learn, as we make presumptions, some of them warranted, some of them not. Um, It's just good and healthy to remember that. What say you, Brent Billings? Uh, Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a a major thread of our whole conversation. And, and just looking at um, the other things that, that Thiessen focuses on, uh, like his his big area of uh, research is, like how Christianity relates to early Judaism and how Jesus engages, um, the Jewish purity laws. So yeah, it's, it's right up the alley of everything we've been talking about. Yep. Absolutely. Um, his second caveat was simply, uh, that really what we're asking when we ask this question of, did Jesus come to, to state it more clearly, did Jesus come to start a new religion? We would say, uh, did Jesus intend to reject Judaism and start Christianity. Was that his intent? Um, and so in order to, to answer that, he spends a whole big section. Is he going to end the chapter with this? No, he's not. Uh, he has a section on the temple, specifically the temple, because um, if you'll notice, that was the critique of Crossan 
and even what N.T. Wright was speaking to when we quoted them earlier in the chapter. There was this critique of the temple, which is obvious. There's no way that you can deny that Jesus has some kind of critique about, is it the temple itself? Is it the temple, the priestly system running the temple? Is it the way the temple functions? Is it the place of the abstract, just just the temple abstract? You know, or what are those things? So that's what he goes to speak to. He says this, he says, the Jerusalem temple was the epicenter of uh, the cult related to the Jewish God. It was the place where God had chosen to concentrate his presence on earth. Recently, Simon Joseph has argued that Jesus aimed to change the Mosaic customs of the Jews by rejecting the violent blood sacrifice inherent in the temple cult. He claims that that Mark and Q source depict an anti-temple Jesus, although Matthew, Luke, and John cloud the issue by introducing the concept of Jesus' death as sacrifice. I think we would, uh, Thiessen's definitely going to argue against that perspective, and I think we would too by simply showing that Mark's audience was so unique. Right, Brent? Who is Mark's audience? The Romans. Which probably shapes the way he portrays Jesus, yes? Uh, yeah, I would think so. That's right. Um, Thiessen goes on later in, in the chapter. He says, Jesus needs to be the temple, a building that he describes as, his, excuse me, Jesus needs to be in the temple early in his life, a place that he describes as his father's house, where he amazes all who hear him speak, even as a young boy. Luke's adolescent Jesus believes that the temple is the earthly dwelling of the Jewish God. These stories come from Luke, the latest of the synoptic gospels. But they fit with how Matthew also depicts Jesus in his adult life. Later in the, cha- in the chapter, the reason Jesus assumes the value of cultic piety can be seen later in Matthew's gospel. For in talking about oath practices, he claims that the temple's altar actually makes what is it offered holy. The altar, then, is infused with holy power. This is because the sanctuary, the naos, which houses the altar, is the place where the Jewish God dwells. So it would be hard to square these statements of Jesus, right, Brent, if he's just rejecting the temple outright? Yes. Finally, one accusation that leads to Jesus' crucifixion is the gospel, and the gospels relates to the temple in Jerusalem itself, which is, he, they try to get him on grounds of... So there obviously is some tension where people have heard him critique the temple system, and yet not enough. He hasn't spoken against it enough. He's actually spoken for it and in line with it enough that those charges are all false, and uh, they have quite a problem levying a case against him. Okay, this is a little weird, but let me let me. Uh, so Matt Teason is a uh, professor at McMaster University, and so I, I I've just found his biography on their website. And let me read you this paragraph. My current research focuses on the way in which the synoptic gospels present Jesus in relation to the Jewish laws of ritual purity, building on the groundbreaking work of Mary Douglas and Jacob Milgram. I will demonstrate that Jesus was not opposed to the Jewish ritual purity system. What Jesus opposes is not the system of ritual purity and impurity, but the very existence of ritual impurity, which he consistently removes from those who suffer it. Essential to my treatment of the gospel accounts is Milgram's argument, based on the anthropological work of Mary Douglas, that in Judaism, ritual impurity represents the forces of death. Consequently, Jesus' ministry of removing impurities suggests that his ministry is one of bringing life to those suffering from the power of death. Yeah, 
You know, you know, the next section of this chapter I was going to talk about, Brent, was ritual impurity. Is exactly that. <laughs> yeah, it is. And and that actually, the summary you just read was uh, just so great. And and I got to tell you, I'll, I'll just, I'll skip all my highlights because of what you just read and I'll jump right to the end because I was like literally fist pumping as I read this paragraph. Because one of the things we went over is we took this exact same position with session three. Right. If you remember, I said, being unclean doesn't. It's not sinful. There's nothing wrong. And I think Jesus leaned into that uncleanness, followed the law in terms of that. And that definitely got some emails. Like that generated some pushback. People were like, no, 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 no. Because we have such a hard time in our Western Christian mind associating uncleanness with something that isn't bad. Like it has to be sinful. It has to be negative. It has to be. And yet Jesus, so here's here's these words. These words had me all excited. He he just got done listing all of these characters. So he listed um, uh, the man suffering from leprosy. Um, he then adds another story of Jesus and 10 lepers. Uh, he talks about the woman with the issue of blood. Um, that touches touches the zizio, the fringe of his garment. Um, he, he then goes and touches a dead, uh, a dead, a, a corpse. Undeterred, he takes hold of the corpse, telling the young girl to rise, which she does. And then and then Thiessen says this, all these people were ritually impure at the time they encountered Jesus. At no point does Jesus tell them not to worry about being ritually impure. Not once does he deny the existence of impurity, and not once does he break the law in relations to those various people. After all, touching or being touched by people who are ritually impure, neither is a breach of the law, nor is it sinful. Come on, Matt Tyson. <laughs> yes. I'm having all of that. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. What is he what is he going to say? Um, what Jesus does, willingly or otherwise, is remove the sources of impurity that make these people ritually impure. And once these sources of impurity have been dealt with, these various people find themselves able to undergo the minor purification rites uh, that remove the residual ritual impurities and then re-enter the temple precincts. In other words, these various stories demonstrate Jesus's belief in the existence of ritual purity and his opposition to its causes, almost as though he wants people to be free of ritual impurity so that they can visit the Jerusalem temple. Far from a rejection of the temple, far from a rejection of Jewish law and ceremonial uncleanness, it's actually an affirmation of those things, and Jesus is saying, that's what I wish we didn't have to deal with. Let me fix that, but not a rejection of the system itself. Yeah, it's like the ultimate goal is deeper relationship with God. And so if this is the system we're working in, I'm going to make it work for you so that you can be closer to God. Absolutely. Like the system is not the point at all. It doesn't matter. Absolutely. The point is relationship with God. So how can we... How can we further that? Mm, 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 mm. All right. One last section is chapter. He talks about sacred time. Um, he talks about uh, what did Jesus think of sacred time? Is he trying to start a new religion or does he affirm the Jewish perspective of sacred time? And so basically they, they want to look at how he, he wants to look at how he relates to Jewish festivals and the Sabbath. Yeah. You're saying sacred time and I'm thinking Genesis one, the chiasm in Genesis one. Is that the, is that the right idea? Uh, it, yeah. If you think Moadim. And you think seasons, right? Yes, the center of the chiasm, and you're thinking festivals. Now, the practical application of what Tyson's going to examine here is going to be: How does Jesus relate to the Sabbath and to the festivals? Does he affirm that, or does he try to reject that, get rid of it, and start something new? 
That's what he's going to be looking at when it comes to the practical practice of Sabbath and the festivals. And um, and so at first when you hear that, you're kind of like, oh, yeah, Jesus kind of bucked against the Sabbath, right? And then when you start to think about it, you're like, oh, wait, no, he actually affirms all the festivals. He shows up and like uh, injects himself into what's happening in the festivals, festival of weeks. Um, we could even say the festival of lights at Hanukkah, a lot of stuff seen in the Gospel of John. Um, uh, Thiessen says this, what work precisely then is involved in healing these people context on the Sabbath. When Jesus heals people on the Sabbath, what work is involved in healing people on the Sabbath? Jesus makes no money from these healed people, derives no benefit from them. He does not even break a, fa- a sweat. In fact, apart from one story, the man, the most he does is touch sick people. In healing the man with a withered hand, as John Meyer notes, Jesus literally does nothing. He simply issues two brief, simple commands to the simple to the afflicted man. Further, when confronted on these issues, Jesus always makes legal Torah-centric arguments to support his actions. So Jesus meets them on their turf and argues on the basis of Torah, not some other basis, not some other metric, not some other thing. He always argues on the legal basis of Torah for his actions on Sabbath. So it's not a rejection of Sabbath. It's a reinterpretation of Sabbath. Those are my words, not his. Um, Let's see here, going back to his words. Uh, This story indicates the human need takes precedent over the temple cult and its laws. What I believe is implicit in Mark and Luke is that if human need takes precedence over the temple cult, as Jesus argues from Scripture, then it also must take priority over the Sabbath. Uh, One could no doubt disagree with this claim, but the fact that Jesus makes a legal argument in all three accounts of the story indicates he has not abandoned belief in the sanctity of the Sabbath. Rather, he assumes it. He argues that human life is of even more value than the Sabbath, and in this, he's hardly alone among fellow Jews of his time. Uh, And I think he's alluding to the rulings of the rabbis that are during the days of Jesus um, and come after Jesus as well. So, whew, some good stuff in there, Brent Billings. What do you think? Uh, I love it. A good book if anyone wants to dive deeper. I mean, it's academic. They're academic essays, but they're, um, I mean, they're far from inaccessible. Uh, I could, I think anybody that wanted to read this kind of stuff could follow along with anything they're talking about. Yeah, and none of these are particularly long essays. So, it, not at all. Even if you're just interested in one or two of these topics, uh, we're talking like 10, 15 pages a piece. Uh, yeah yeah absolutely so yeah i'd say on an individual topic level very accessible and you don't have to read every chapter if you don't want to absolutely i love it well i'll look forward to doing a couple more chapters the next time brent sounds good uh that'll do it for this episode if you want to get a hold of marty you can find him on twitter at marty solomon i'm at eibcb and of course you can go to baymodestapleship.com uh for all the information about the show we've got several links uh in this in this episode, um, of course, the, the book that we're talking about, uh, plus some resources on the two authors. And then uh, I'm going to try to find a, a link for that Peter Enns book you mentioned. So check that out, and uh, we will talk to you again soon.